You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World this week Broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite Listen to the Anarchist World this week Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse Listen to analysis of local, national and international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is coming to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. The program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name's Joseph Toscone. I'm hosting today's program. Now, uh, this is a special program because I'll be concentrating on two main issues and making some brief observations on another issue. I'll be concentrating on what's happening in West Papua and our involvement with the West Papuan independence movement in this country. And I'll be doing a detailed analysis of the uh, Eureka Rebellion and why it matters in 2020, 166 years later. Because unfortunately, it's uh, been written out of the uh, record books, not only out of the record books, but it's also been written out of people's minds. And I think it's, it's a tragedy. It's a huge tragedy, which I hope to partially redress in today's program. So if you all eureka it out, you better listen. be listening to somebody else. But uh, if you're interested in uh, analysis you'll never hear anywhere else, well, keep listening to The Anarchist World this week. Let's start off with West Papua. Yesterday, the 1st of December, was West Papua Independence Day. And flag raisings occurred all over West Papua. And uh, many people paid the ultimate price for having the audacity to raise the West Papua flag in the occupied um, West Papua, occupied by the Indonesian forces now for over 60 years. There is still an ongoing struggle going on in West Papua, and that struggle is, the armed struggle is contained in the mountains, and the political struggle is occurring across the world. And we are part of that political struggle for West Papua independence. And uh, in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, we play an exceptionally important role in coordinating that struggle for independence. About six years ago, I was approached by John Lawrence to assist the West Papuan people, and after a discussion with my late wife, Ellen Jose, we decided to set up the West Papuan Rent Collective. And the whole purpose of the West Papuan Rent Collective was to provide officers fit for a nation-state for West Papuan refugees and asylum seekers living in this country so that they could promote West Papuan independence around the world. As we approach the sixth anniversary, that's right, sixth anniversary of the West Papuan office, we find ourselves in a very, very, very difficult situation. 
Now, normally we have face-to-face gatherings about every three to four months to keep people informed about what's going on. But during the COVID-19 crisis, this is, uh, we haven't been able to do that. And although there has been some valiant uh, online attempts to keep things uh, moving, uh, members in the West Papuan Rent Collective have dropped dramatically for a variety of reasons. And if we cannot get or obtain 25 new members by June 2020, the office at 838 uh, Collins Street in Docklands will close down. It would be a great tragedy if this occurs because at the very moment when the West United Liberation Movement of West Papua formed a transitional government yesterday on the 1st of December, a transitional government to tra- you know, to, uh, for independence, we find ourselves that one of their major organs via which they are trying to drum up support in the United Nations and around the world will have to shut down because of lack of support. Now, I'm not asking you to ring me up now and, you know, join the Rent Collective. That's a dollar a day. But what I would like you to consider is coming along to the West Papua Open Day on the Sunday, the 6th of December. It's an online event and a face-to-face event. If you can't join us face-to-face, you can register at for the online event and you must register to be part of the online event. You can register at www try booking t r y booking b o k i n g dot com forward slash capitals b m u o b i'll mention that uh, registration address once again if you want to uh, see what's going on online that's uh sunday the 6th of december starting at 2 p.m. you can register at www.try t r y booking dot com forward slash capital B M U O B. But instead of you know wasting your time online, if you got the chance this Sunday, that's right, it's this Sunday, the sixth of December, just turn up eight three eight Collins Street in Docklands. Uh, just walk around the building, come to the back and that's where you'll see everybody, lots of people gathering for the uh, West Papuan open day. Now, the West Papuan Open Day, why is the West Papuan office so important? Well, believe it or not, the West Papuan Independence Movement, the West Papuan United Liberation Movement, has no full-time office anywhere in the world, except at Docklands in Melbourne. And this office has acts as a coordinating centre for the independence struggle. It acts as a coordinating centre for the struggle the political struggle, the continuing political struggle which is necessary to achieve independence for the West Papuan people because the West Papuan independence movement has both got an armed faction and a political faction. And the job of the political faction is to generate interest and support in countries around the world. And the office has been able to act as that base via which they have been able to obtain support for independence from Melanesian countries as well as many African countries and many Caribbean countries, nearly at the point where they'll be able to raise the issue 
of West Papua Independence in the Decolonisation Committee of the United Nations, and that's their major plan, and the office plays a very important role in that plan. Now, the whole point of the office is... When you're involved in political and social struggle, you find you're spending 90% of your time raising money you know, to maintain your infrastructure, whether it's virtual or physical, and 10% of your time being involved in political activity. By us, as ordinary Australians, people like you and me, paying the rent, joining the West Papuan Rent Collective, we free up West Papuan activists from the dreary job of raising money to keep the office afloat. Every dollar which is donated by the West Papuan Rent Collective goes into paying the rent. Nobody gets paid. As the convener of the West Papuan Rent Collective, I don't get paid. I actually pay into the collective. Nobody gets paid. No money that is donated to the Rent Collective by Rent Collective members is used for any activities which are organised by the West Papuan Movement. They fund all their own activities. That's the relationship we have. We don't tell them how to run their independence campaign. They don't tell us how to raise money. And we found the best way to do it was by being involved in um, in creating a rent collective. Now, the rent collective concept is very simple. You won't get any reminder notices. Nobody's going to telephone you. Nobody's going to knock on your door. Nobody's going to send you an email. It's based on an honour system because we find that most people who donate to the Rent Collective aren't the rich and famous who could pay the rent by clicking their finger, you know, pay the rent for a year by clicking their finger. They're not interested. The type of people that we have in the Rent Collective are elderly people, people with disabilities, people on Social Security benefits, people on, you know, minimum wages who are willing to donate a dollar a day a dollar a day into the rent collective. Some people pay monthly, some people pay yearly, make a yearly contribution. As I said before, we need another 25 new members. We usually like to have about 70 members so that we could maintain the rent collective in the red. If it wasn't for a generous donation by the late Peter Grant, who donated a lump sum to the West Papuan office for the rent before he died... A number of years ago, we would have been closed down two years ago. That money has almost disappeared. We need rent collective members. And this is a pivotal moment because as we speak on the 2nd of December regarding this particular issue, let's not forget that 24 hours previously, the United Liberation Movement of West Papua formed a transitional government to enter into dialogue and negotiations with the Indonesian government for independence. This is the first time this has occurred. The struggle for independence is gaining momentum. 2020 has been a particularly noxious year for West Papuans, a particularly difficult year with many people murdered by the West Papuan military. If you think the stories about Australian troops murdering civilians and prisoners in Afghanistan is horrible, if you magnify that a hundred times or a thousand times, 
This is what's been happening in West Papua now for over 60 years. And as the independence movement accelerates, as the push for independence gains more credence among more sovereign nation states around the world, the repression increases. And the repression yesterday on the 1st of December on their Independence Day has increased dramatically as the Indonesian military is very concerned about losing the lucrative money they make from mining, deforestation and fishing in the West, in their West Papuan province. Because, to be brutally honest, the Indonesian government has minimal power or control over West Papua. It is basically a military, Indonesian military fiefdom. So if there was ever a moment to join, now is the moment to join. Now, if you wish, you can do a number of things. You can actually leave a message on 0439 395 489. That's 0439 395 489. And I'll send you out the necessary material. Or you can go to their website, www.dfat, Federal Republic of West Papua.org. That's www.dfat, Federal Republic of West Papua.org. And um, you can log in all the details there. Now you can donate anonymously or you can wear it as a badge of honour. But if you're equivocal, if you want to see where your money's going, if you want to meet some of the activists involved, well, then I encourage you to come along to the West Papuan Open Day this Sunday, the 6th of December 2020. That's right, the 6th of December this Sunday. 1pm lunch. Rent, um, rent Collective members, it's for free. And everybody else, it's a $10 donation. And at 2pm, the online and face-to-face event uh, begins. And uh, we'll be speaking online to three West Papuan leaders on new political developments in West Papua. And uh, these these are major leaders. Uh, we are t- we'll be talking to the uh, new Prime Minister of the Transitional Government, Edison Waromi, who is in Jayapura, who is uh, basically uh, awaiting arrest. And there'll be Zoom chats with uh, Benny Wenda in Oxford, who's the head of the West Papua Independence Movement outside West Papua, and a journalist, a Swedish journalist, uh, Klaus Ludström in Stockholm. So it's a three-way conversation between Benny Wenda in Oxford, Edison Waromi, who's the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister of the Transitional Government in Jayapura, and journalist Klaus Lundström in Stockholm. And uh, Jude Cohn, uh, a songwriter, will be uh, give me, uh, will be doing a new wrong. But you must be uh, singing a song, a new song she's written for the day. But if you want to do this online, you must register. www.trybookingbook.com forward slash nb. M-U-O-B, that's www.trybooking.com forward slash capital B, capital M, capital U, capital O, capital B. But I encourage you not just to be involved online, but come along 
838 Collins Street, Docklands. Just walk around the building. There'll be a sign at the front door and at the back is the uh, common room and where the uh, activities will take place. And one of the activities will be planting the Dag Hammers Joel West Parkland tree at the office, which I am pleased to say I'll be involved with. And obviously I'll be making the usual... Uh, push to increase the numbers of the rent collective. This is an exceptionally important issue because it has really irritated the Indonesian government that the West Papuan, United Liberation Movement West Papua has this very, very active office and it's really irritated the Australian government because they can't really do much about it because it's Australians who are supporting the office. They can't put pressure on refugees and asylum seekers, which they try to do, by saying they that they fund the office, they don't. We fund the office. This is this is a I think this is a proud achievement of people in Melbourne and Victoria. But you can be anywhere in Australia and support the West Papuan Independence Movement. A dollar a day means you forego two cappuccinos a week, maybe one greasy pizza every two weeks. So it's good for your health to join the West Papua Rent Collective. You're listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Before I move on to the uh, Eureka celebrations, and I would like to concentrate on Eureka for the rest of the program, I'd just like to make a few comments regarding criminal lawyer or ex-lawyer, Barrister Nicola Gobbo, and the report which has been handed down by the investigative uh, committee into the police way that uh, Nicola Gobbo was handled. And uh, if you really want to look at a report that squibs the issue, this is the report. Basically, the blame has been put on the victim. And the story is very simple. As pedophiles groom their victims... Victoria Police groomed Nicola Gobbo since she was a teenager. She was in a house that was raided when she was 19 and a law student. Drugs were found in that house. Pressure was placed on her to uh, be a police informant uh, because if she was charged, she would have been thrown out of law school never graduated as a lawyer, and that pressure continued for 27 years. 27 years. Hundreds of Victoria Police were involved. And everybody knew the last thing a barrister has to do, the worst thing a barrister can do, is squib to the police on their clients. If you think the confessional is sacrosanct, the relationship between a barrister and their client should be sacrosanct. Let's not forget we have one individual, Nicola Gobbo, versus the Victoria Police, the organisation which is there supposedly to protect our interests, pressured all along the way. Now, I'm not saying Nicola Gobbo is a saint or a heroine or a hero, 
But what I'm saying is the report that's come out of the investigating committee has basically let the Victoria Police off the hook and hung Nicola Gobbo out to dry. Think about it. Just think about what Victoria Police was like in the 1980s and 1990s. Extortion, corruption. Remember when the St Kilda office was raided? Raided, that's right. The St Kilda police station, guns were found in the roof. People were trading drugs. There were protection rackets and the list goes on and on and on. So think about it. And for them to us, for the Royal or the Commission to squib on this, or the Investigative Committee to squib on this, I think uh, highlights um, about the cover-ups continue as far as Victoria Police is concerned. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. Eureka. Why is it important? Look, it happened 160 years, 166 years ago. Who cares? And obviously... 99% of the Australian population would agree with that uh, concept. Who cares? Even among radical elements, we find that uh, the Eureka Rebellion has been downplayed, pushed aside, ignored. Not by us. Not by the reclaim, the radical spirit of the Eureka Rebellion celebrations. And what was Eureka all about? Let's start at the beginning. When gold was first discovered in 1851... 700 squatters controlled, owned every acre in the state. After a vicious, undeclared war on this on this state's first nation, on Victoria's first nations people, where murder, rape, dispossession, brutality was the name of the game. Within 15 years of colonisation, 700 squatters control the whole of Victoria. And these were not squatters who were homeless. These were people with money from England. These were people with money who set up sheep runs to grow wool for the Industrial Revolution, for the hell holes, the you know, of the Industrial Revolution in England. They, these people relied on cheap labour, a little bit like we rely on the gig economy and the cheap labour of uh, internet, uh, people on temporary work visas in this country today. These people relied on cheap labour which they are able to obtain from convicts who'd been released Ticket of leave, men and women, they were called. And obviously, gold, discovery of gold, poses a huge problem as far as retaining your labour force is concerned. And the Victorian government, which achieved a separation from New South Wales in 1851, the Legislative Council, made the decision that they would tax individual miners, instead of taxing those people who discovered gold, it was decided to tax individual miners to ensure that people remained as a cheap labour force on the squatters' runs across the state. 
This was the decision which eventually led to the Eureka Rebellion in 1854. Discovering gold in those days, a little bit like winning first division or second division in Tatsloglo today. Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands flocked to the gold fields. Very few made their fortunes. And if you had to pay a month's wages for a licence fee to dig a hole five metres by five metres, you can understand when 99% of people didn't actually make any money from digging gold, you can understand the anger that people felt. And when you had a corrupt, totally corrupt police force, which was corrupted because of low wages which the Victoria Police was formed in 1851, who augmented their income through gaining a percentage of the fines which are levied on miners who didn't actually have a licence on them when digging for gold, you can understand the anger that was fermented across the gold fields in Victoria. You had this tax. You had tens of thousands of people who flocked to the Victorian gold fields there were over 25,000 people in Ballarat who'd flocked to the gold fields. And these were not your normal run, you know, immigrant looking for fame and fortune. Many of these people were political refugees. They were refugees from the failed 1848 revolutions which spread across Europe. They're refugees from the English Chartist movement which attempted to obtain universal suffrage unsuccessfully in England. These were, there were people that come from other gold fields. There were people from every corner of the universe. Well, I exaggerate, corner of the world. Because the British Empire was the empire where the sun never set in 1854. There were people of all races, all colours, all religions, of all political persuasions. But one thing they had in common was their oppression was the oppression by the state authorities through the police. So here are people who'd come to this country looking for a new life, found that they suffered the same oppressive conditions they were running away from, that nothing had changed. And this was all for the glory of 700 rich squatters who had obtained their land by murdering the original inhabitants. And all you've got to do is look at the original stories, the original records to see this was murder on an industrial scale so they could actually, you know, grow sheep, cut their wool off and send it to England you know, to feed the hell holes which were created during the Industrial Revolution, the woolen mills. So here we have, this is the situation people find themselves in. In Ballarat particularly, the Gold Commissioner, Mr Reid, was very keen to ensure that miners had their licences on them. And he ordered raid after raid after raid after raid on the Ballarat miners. And this obviously caused a great deal of resentment and friction because the police, when they captured somebody who didn't have a licence, they'd tie him up by a chain, 
to the ankle to tree trunks outside Camp Street in Ballarat where the uh, police headquarters were and they stayed there chained until somebody paid the fine and they received a percentage of that fine to augment their income. And matters came to a head in 1854 when the owner of Bentley's Hotel was accused of murdering a minor and then exonerated by a corrupt police force. This, this led to the burning down of Bentley's Hotel and the authorities, in order to regain control, just picked ten people, holus bolus, and charged them. On the 1st of November 1854, we saw the first mass meeting, monster meeting they called them in Ballarat. And the reason the Eureka Rebellion occurred, in my opinion, is the fact that they had a free press. It's not like today, where you've got the corporate-owned media and the government guild at ABC. In a town of 25,000 people, you had four independent newspapers. That's right, four independent newspapers. Four. And three of them supported the Ballarat miners and their demands. On the 11th of November 1854, the Ballarat Reform League was formed. And do you think the Ballarat Reform League was some tin-pot little organisation with uh, no uh, political understanding? Let's not forget that the Ballarat Reform League was a radical organisation which believed that human beings were born with inalienable rights which no government or corporation could take away. And this is the statement they made. This is a statement of rebellion, a statement of revolution. That being, as the people have been hitherto unrepresentative in the Legislative Council, the colony of Victoria, they have been tyrannised over and it becomes their duty as well as interest to resist and, if necessary, to remove the irresponsible power which so tyrannises over them that this colony has hitherto been governed by paid officials upon the false assumption that law is greater than justice because forsooth it was made by them and their friends and admirably suits their selfish ends and narrow-minded views. It is the object of the League to place power in the hands of responsible representatives of the people, to frame wholesome laws and carry on an honest government. That it is not the wish of the League to effect an immediate separation of this colony from the parent country. If equal laws and equal rights are dealt out to the whole free community, but if Queen Victoria continues to act upon indirectly dictating obnoxious laws for the colony under the assumed authority of the royal prerogative... The Reform League will endeavour to supersede such royal prerogative as the people are the only legitimate source of all political power. This was a radical movement, as I said before, which believed 
that human beings were born with inalienable rights. These were refugees, asylum seekers, migrants, locally born people who understood that ultimate political authority does not lie in the hands of the state, the bureaucracy, the business sector, but in the hands of the people. So what are the underlying principles of the Eureka Rebellion which we celebrate on the 3rd of December? A shrinking band of us celebrate on the 3rd of December. If you look at the Eureka Oath which was sworn by poorly armed miners on the 29th of November 1854 at Bakery Hill, it gives you an idea, an exact idea of what these people were all about, why they were willing to confront the greatest military power in the history of the planet, the British Empire at its very height. And this is the Eureka Oath, something maybe you should write down or look up and recite to yourself tomorrow on the 3rd of December if you can't make it to the Eureka Rebellion celebrations. We swear. We. Didn't say white people with two legs, but we, that's everybody, we swear by the Southern Cross. Most people take this as a religious, you know, figure. It's not. What's the difference between living in the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere? Remember, these were great tent cities that people lived under. They lived out the canvas, and when they looked up in the sky, they didn't have YouTube, or playstations, or radios, or televisions, when they looked up in the sky at night, they saw the Southern Cross and the Morning Star. And these are two star formations which are not seen in the Northern Hemisphere. So to them, this was an indication that they had made great, great sacrifices to come here and we're not willing to put up with the garbage they put up in Europe, in the Northern Hemisphere. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other. To stand truly by each other. That's about solidarity. People understood that as individuals they could be picked off, as we are today with individual contracts, as we are today, as we see the almost extinction of the trade union movement as it's legislated over existence and trade unionists are criminalised because they are acting collectively, acting together. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight. That's right. They're willing to fight to defend our rights and liberties. So I'll say it again. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. And those idiots, and I'm being unfair to idiots, those people once synapse in neuron who think the Eureka Rebellion was about small business people revolting against licences or about some you know, struggle about white supremacy, think again because I will explain why it was never either of these things. And it's tragic that in 2020, 166 years later, we see businesses, government institutions, white supremacists all adopt 
the Eureka symbols to promote their concerns with no understanding of what those Eureka symbols are all about because the four essential planks of the Eureka Rebellion are direct democracy, meetings were conducted by the Ballarat Reform League. Mass meetings were called. And we're talking about monster meetings of 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people from a population of less than 30,000. Remember in 1854, there were no PA system, no microphones. Decisions were made by the mass meetings. Delegates were appointed. Delegates were sent to Melbourne to negotiate with the governor of the day, Governor Hotham and the government of the day. And then they came back to these mass meetings to report back to the assembled gathering. So we had a direct democracy in play because when people are denied access to decision-making processes in society, they develop their own decision-making processes and direct democracy was a central feature of the Eureka Rebellion. And direct democracy is a central feature of the anarchist struggle, of the struggle to share wealth and share power. The next important element of the Eureka Rebellion is internationalism. That's right, internationalism. This was not some nationalistic revolt. This was an international revolt. This was a revolt of people of all races, of all colours, of all religions, of many political persuasions. This was a truly universal rebellion where people, despite their differences, came together to throw off their oppressors to teach the tyrants a lesson. They came together despite their differences. And nothing highlights this more than the fact that the 13 people who were charged with high treason and high treason in 1854 was a very serious crime and the penalty of found guilty was hanging, drawing and quartering. And if you don't know what hanging, drawing and quartering is, it's the type of thing that, you know, royal families, royal families, families who get their power through divine intervention, use to subjugate, subjugate their population. It's a horrific way of executing somebody. First of all, you strangle them half to death. Asphyxiate them. You don't hang them. You asphyxiate them. Then when they're nearly dead, you place them on a platform and you cut open their belly, their abdomen, from the sternum down to the bladder. That's drawing. And then, because let's not remember, these were public executions to act as a example to the rest of the population if you revolt against the royal family those with divine you know imperative well then this is what will happen to you because 
not everybody could see that poor little individual being mutilated. The intestines were held aloft. Remember this man or woman is still alive and then they were burnt. So the smell, the smell covered the crowd. So they would never forget that smell. And then if you are lucky, the executioner will put a the knife through your heart. But if you're unlucky, if you're a particularly heinous, you know, uh, uh, opponent of the royal family, people like you and me, you were drawn and courted. What that means is that you'd have a horse attached to your arms and your legs and they'd be pulled off from the sockets. That's the punishment which awaited these people. 13 of the 100 people that were... Uh, 140 people that arrested, 13 were tried for high treason. And to highlight, and to highlight the nature of the people involved, of those 13 that were tried for high treason, John Joseph, the man who was, it was claimed, shot Captain Wise of the 40th Regiment, the second in command of the troops that overran the Eureka Stockade, was a black freed slave from New York. That's right. A black freed slave from New York. Raphael Caboni, the first man in this country's history who equated the plight of the Aborigines, the Wada Warong around Ballarat, who he lived with for over a year in 1853, a year before the Eureka Rebellion, with the worst excesses of British colonialism came from Umbrio in what is now Italy. Uh, John Sorison, sorry, Jacob Sorison was a Jew from Scotland. Jan Venick came from Holland. Michael Tui, Timothy Hayes, John Phelan and a, came from, were Irish rebels. And James McPhee Campbell was a black man from Kingston, Jamaica. And the only one of the 13 who was born in Australia, who was born in Sydney, was Tom, Thomas Dignam. So you can see these were people from all corners of the world. And when we go back to the Eureka Stockade and the what happened in the Eureka Stockade, when the troops of the 40th and 12th Regiment raided the Eureka Stockade, there's only about 120 men left in the stockade, although there'd been over 2,000 the day before, because people believed that the government would never attack them on the God's Day, Sunday. Little did they know that those who believe in uh, the divine right of kings don't give a shit about religion and never have and never will, even if they create their own religion and call it the Church of England. So we had this situation where these men stood their ground as mounted troops, mounted police, raced through the stockade, which is about an acre in size. And at the end of the day, almost half had been killed, but many ran out into the tents surrounding the Eureka stockade. And they'd ran out because of the heroics of the pikemen. The pikemen were 15 men 
with long pikes whose job it was to face the troops as they came across on their horses and cut the stirrups, the reins, in order to dismount these troops. And they stood their ground and gave their fellow participants time to escape. So think of the situation. Think of the situation. It's morning. The light's breaking. There are people in agony from being shot or slashed with swords and knives, bayoneted on the ground. There's fires, there's smoke, there's screaming. The Eureka flag is torn down from the flagpole. And then for the next three hours, the Victoria Police, that's right, the Victoria Police, our famous Victoria Police, went on an orgy of looting, burning and murdering. And many of the people who had died, died in the massacre following the overrunning of the stockade. So internationalism is a central plank and a central feature of the Eureka Rebellion. As I spoke before, solidarity. That's what the Ballarat Reform League was all about. And obviously direct action. These people took up arms to defend what they believed were the inalienable rights and liberties. They were willing to pay the ultimate price, and many paid the ultimate price. And 166 years later, we have forgotten these basic planks of the Eureka Rebellion, direct democracy, direct action, internationalism and solidarity. Principles that are as important to us in 2020 as they were to them in 1854. These were our brothers and sisters in terms of the way they organised, in terms of the way they acted, in terms of the way, in terms of their belief systems. Now we don't hold them up as heroes. We hold them up as examples. Examples of how society can change. Because when you look at the Eureka Rebellion, think about throwing a stone into a still pond. You get the splash, and that was rebellion. Then you get the ripples. And there were many ripples which continued to 2020. The people of Victoria were horrified with what occurred in Ballarat. And the Victorian government was exposed for what it was. Because... Within 24 hours of the news of the massacre filtering out, there were demonstrations in every major city, in Geelong, in Castlemaine, in Bendigo, in Melbourne. Almost every soldier, every Marine, was in Ballarat. And in those days, they didn't have helicopters to deploy their troops. And the Victorian government realised very quickly very, very quickly they were exposed and appointed 1,500, 1,500 special constables to try to maintain order. And when the 13 were taken in chains to Pentridge Prison, sorry, to the old Melbourne jail, my apologies, to the old Melbourne jail, were taken in chains to the old Melbourne jail to be tried for high treason, there were demonstrations across Victoria. And when they came up for trial, starting with John Joseph, the black, the Afro-American freed slave from New York, 
They were all acquitted by juries of their peers. And the colonial authorities realised that they had to have, make an accommodation with the Eureka rebels. And that accommodation included universal male suffrage, representation in Parliament. Within 12 months of the rebellion, the leaders of the rebellion, Laylaw and Humphreys, were members of Parliament. Could you imagine that happening today? Could you imagine that happening in 2020 with all the laws we have today? So what about the celebrations this year? Well, we have truncated them. It's not the 18-hour extravaganza. COVID-19 restrictions and the fact that uh, we didn't want to actually um, cause any friction in the city of Ballarat uh, means that we have uh, changed a little bit what we're doing. We're still having the dawn ceremony from 4am to 6am at Eureka Park at the corner of Eureka and Stall Street in Ballarat. Just turn up. We are still having the effigy burning and uh, the effigy we will be burning this year will be of uh, Christian Porter, the Attorney General, not personally him, but we want to highlight the powers the Attorney General has in this country, the power to ban any organisation he believes may pose a threat to Commonwealth interests, that's organisations like the Anarchist Minimum Institute or any other institute or organisation, that anybody supporting that organisation once it's banned can be jailed for up to 25 years. Anybody raising money for that organisation can be jailed for up to 25 years. The fact that strikes are illegal in this country outside of uh, enterprise bargaining agreement, the fact that we're talking about secret trials, the, uh, you know, the Witness K trial, secret jailings, the fact that the Attorney-General will be making a decision on whether to prosecute the ABC journalist who uh, leaked, had leaked information regarding about the atrocities which were being conducted by some AS, SAS troops in Afghanistan, and the list goes on and on. So what we've seen is a concentration of power in the hands of the Attorney-General. And we will be burning that effigy for that reason. At 6.30am... Uh, the uh, d the manager of the Eureka Centre has offered to open up the centre to those participants who are, who are involved in the Eureka in the Eureka celebrations. That's on um, Thursday, the third of December. That's at six thirty a.m. to have a look at the original Eureka flag, which is uh, there, and I'll give a talk about the original Eureka flag if you're coming on the day. Then at twelve o'clock, we'll be meeting at the. Old Ballarat Cemetery at the grave at the grave at the graveside of the uh, mass grave at which about fifty percent of those who died are buried. That's right. People like Edward Fonan, a Jew from Prussia, the lemonade salesman, the man whose body was riddled, riddled with musket balls as he stood his ground as one of the pikemen the owner of the pikeman's dog, and the list goes on and on. And then that evening we'll be having a small Eureka dinner. No no entertainment, just a small Eureka dinner. Now, if you want to go to the Eureka dinner, bookings are essential. Now, you can go to my Facebook page, you can go to the Pipsy page, you can go to the Anarchist Media Institute page, anarchistmedia.org page, or you can leave a message on 0439 395 489 and basically just pay for your... Uh, own food and drinks. So we're not having the march. We'll only be having one Eureka, uh, one uh, Eureka medal presentation. That'll be for Julian Assange, and we'll do that about five thirty in the morning. 
and uh, we'll be doing that uh, that ceremony too. So the dawn ceremony is uh, particularly important, so I encourage you to come. We will be following what are the current COVID-19 restrictions in Victoria or in Ballarat on the on Thursday the 3rd of December. So uh, bookings, you don't have to book, just turn up, but if you want to come to the dinner, well, let me know on the morning if you turn up and if you can't make it to the dawn ceremony, that's understandable, you can always come to the gathering or the assembly on, at the grave site at the old Ballarat Cemetery at midday on Thursday the 3rd of December. You've been listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscana. I'd just like to remind you about these events once again. The Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion celebrations, which are occurring on Thursday the 3rd of December, which is tomorrow. That's right. Dawn Ceremony, 4am. Uh, viewing the Eureka flag in the Eureka Centre, 6.30am. Assembly, people's assembly at the grave site of those who are buried at the old Ballarat Cemetery who died on that faithful day on the 3rd of December and dinner at uh, 6pm at the Red Lion Hotel at Main Road, Ballarat. Don't forget the West Papuan Open Day for potential uh, members for the Rent Collective. We do need 25 new members. If you can't turn up at the day, uh, lunch at 1pm, uh, Rent Collective members free, otherwise you pay $10. Uh, it's an online and face-to-face event. The face-to-face event is at 838 Collins Street, Docklands. That's 838 Collins Street, Docklands. Now, online, you need to register at www.trybooking.com forward slash b. M-U-O-B and there'll be interviews with uh, Benny Wender the uh, leader of the West Papua Independence Movement in exile Edison Moromi the Prime Minister of the Transitional Government which was formed yesterday on the 1st from Jayapura in West Papua which was formed yesterday in West Papua and journalist Klaus Lindstrom from Stockholm obviously there'll be uh, talking from the usual crew Jacob Rumbiak Babawan Mirino, Joe Toscana and Clovis Mawabi. You've been listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au, 3cr.org.au, Facebook page, Joseph Toscana, anarchistmedia.org, YouTube, public interest before corporate interest, join them, pipsy.net, pibci.net, and the list goes on and on. Whatever happens, if you can't make it to Ballarat, I understand. Happy Eureka Day. Put up the Eureka flag in your front yard. Shock the neighbours. Reclaim your history. It's important that as human beings we acknowledge the past to understand the present and change the future. And it's quite fascinating that 166 years later the same central planks of the Eureka Rebellion, direct democracy, direct action, solidarity and internationalism play such a central part in the struggle for an anarchist society, an equal society. Listen in, the anarchist, Nick, anarchist world this week, next week. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist world this week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 
10am every Wednesday. Listen to The Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.